Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light of what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt. This episode is being brought to you by the Born to be a Badass Prep School, the premier self-protection course that teaches you everything you should have been taught about how to be safe in the world as you were growing up, but weren't. If you're like me, you were taught how to cross the street and how to swim, but probably heard very little, if anything at all, about the dangers you might encounter at work, in your relationships, or just out and about in the world. Maybe that's because your parents, like mine, didn't know what to teach you. Or maybe it was just assumed that bad things might happen to other people, but not to you. This is the program I wish had existed when my own daughters were growing up. Heck, it's what I needed to learn and never had a clue about in my younger days. The Prep School is an online program where you will change your mindset and learn how to make the most of your innate abilities to protect yourself. You'll learn what to look for and how to recognize potential dangers, what to do in bad situations, and how to manage fear. You'll discover how to tap into your body's natural protective skills if you have to fight, and how to deal with the aftermath of an incident. Not only is this a virtual program that you can do from anywhere at any time, you get lifetime access to the content, access to my private support group, and you get a gift certificate to use towards one of my live hands-on training events that builds upon the prep school curriculum. Get yourself over to www.cynthiajolicur.com slash prep school to learn more and to register for an upcoming session. As a listener to the Born to be a Badass podcast, you will save more than 60% on your enrollment by entering the code podcast when you register. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur, and today I am absolutely thrilled to bring onto the show a woman that I have known for several years and who I admire and respect tremendously, and I know that you're going to absolutely love what she has to say and talk about. So her name is Ruthven Darlene, and her background includes a master's degree in English literature, a teaching credential, and state certification in domestic violence advocacy. She's worked at Stanford's Center for Research in Disease Prevention, and she developed a research model that later she was able to use to create her own nonprofit in 2011. That nonprofit is called Women of Silicon Valley, also known as Women SV. Women SV helps survivors address the risks and challenges of being trapped in a relationship with an affluent abuser. And they also offer professional trainings that assist providers in delivering more trauma-informed care to their patients, students, and clients. Ruthven and Women SV are in the process of creating a training center to educate providers nationwide. And they also give presentations to the community to raise awareness about the impact of domestic violence in middle to upper income areas. Now, although I first met Ruthen through Women SV and was able to meet some of the women that she serves, I did not know that 
as well, in addition to being a local organization, her reach and the reach of Women SV actually was national. And I just want to tell you that they've gained national recognition and been featured in a documentary on the Investigation Discovery Channel. That documentary is called Behind Closed Doors, Shocking Secrets. They've also been on the Megyn Kelly Today Show, uh, been in the New York Times, and on Good Morning America. Super cool piece here. Ruthven is also the recipient of this year's Jefferson Award for Public Service from the CBS affiliate KPIX. Her mission continues to be to promote the fundamental human right of every woman and child to live in peace and safety in their own home. And I just want to say I'm so honored and so pleased and so thankful that Ruthven agreed to come on the show. Welcome, Ruthven, to the Born to be a Badass podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cynthia. It's a delight to be here with you. Oh, thank you. I've been looking forward to this for weeks and weeks and weeks. I want to start us off with a, a quick round of questions just to kind of get in the flow and get things warmed up. And then we'll move to some specific questions related to your life's work. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay. What is your favorite comfort food or indulgence? Oh, my goodness. Um, chocolate. I, 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 yeah, it, it, it wards off Dementors, uh, like from Harry Potter, <laughs> uh, and has lots of, um, I don't know, releases lots of feel-good hormones. Any particular brand? Oh, the worse it is for you, the better I like it. Oh, so like what would be a super, super, super treat? Oh, oh my gosh. Just a big old chocolate bar chocolate-covered almonds, chocolate-covered dried fruit, mm. uh, anything with chocolate on it. Yes. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> Making my mouth water just talking about it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I can so relate because that's my number one, too. And right before oh. my wedding, uh, my daughters and I discovered a chocolate lounge that is not far from us, and we actually went in there with the intention oh. of bringing one piece back for each person in the family, and we came back with two and a half pounds. <laughs> Please don't tell me where it is, Cynthia. <laughs> I won't I tell won't, you. I won't, I won't come out alive. <laughs> no, I won't tell you that when you come up to visit Coyoteville in person, you'll actually go past it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'll put blinkers on. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. What's mm. your favorite place to go on vacation? Oh, Hawaii. Hawaii, always. Uh, there's a spiritual feel uh, to the islands that I haven't found anywhere else. The weather, the people, but just the uh, atmosphere. There's something different, something magical about, about the islands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love Hawaii. I've only been a few times, but every time I've loved it. So it's a great place to be. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I like to say it's not just a place, it's a feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the aloha, aloha feeling. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yep. What is your favorite self-care practice? Oh, gosh. Well, speaking of Hawaii, what I like to do is um, my building has a pool, and on a sunny summer day, or, or one much like it, I like to put on my bathing suit, take my little uh, cell phone, down to the pool, put it on the Hawaiian music station. And there's a couple of palm trees by the pool. 
So I'll put it on the Hawaiian music station and then just pretend I'm in Hawaii for an hour and it transports me. Oh, that's great. That's like an instant escape. Yes, yes. And if it's rainy or cold, then mindless TV uh, can help. I'm watching, well, I don't know if it's mindless, but indulgent. Uh, I'm watching the Thorn Birds. Uh, one of my favorite series was the Foresight Saga. Just like things that kind of take me away. Oh, yeah. Oldies but goodies. I, re- I remember those in their initial yes. releases. Yes, yes, yes. They were wonderful. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I guess I'm a romantic at heart. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last quick question mm-hmm. is, what words of advice do you have for younger women, women in their 20s, something that you wish that you had been told then that would have made a big difference? Don't judge a book by its cover. Um, have people earn your trust little by little and be careful how much you reveal of yourself and how much you give of yourself until people prove themselves worthy of it. Mm, that's really deep. Yeah. I, I wonder if somebody had told me that when I was in my twenties, I wonder if I would actually have taken it in and understood <laughs> it. Yeah. I just, I wonder if I would have understood like how important that would actually turn out to be. Well, unfortunately, so much of learning is about making mistakes and falling down and then just picking ourselves up again and trying again with new new wisdom. But um, until we're in the situation, it's really hard to know how wise we'll be until we've tested lots of different ways of being and found some of them have worked better than others. Yes, yes. And with that particular one, I think for me growing up, my default mode was always to trust somebody until they proved that they weren't trustworthy. And that same can, here, <laughs> that can be a really dangerous way to go about things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, um, you know, part of the innocence we have growing up until we've been betrayed. And then, then we learn to be more careful. But I think if we just learn, if we taught our children earlier and earlier, what a healthy relationship looks like and what early warning signs of controlling behavior look like and what to do if you find yourself in an emotionally abusive relationship. We'd be much safer, much healthier as a result. But uh, if you're not learning those things at home and you're not learning them at school, well, where are you getting that information till you, you know, enter into a relationship and find yourself well, with a with an open heart and then later a broken heart because you trusted and been betrayed, oh, sometimes it can feel like it's, you know, it's it's kind of too late. It never is too late, but it's just there's more and more at stake, more to risk, more to lose the older you are and the more invested you become in a relationship before realizing that it's not what you thought it was. I totally get that. And it's exactly what I believe about women learning self-defense skills. You know, it's, it's something that should yes. be just part of growing up. It should be, you know, how to take care of yourself, how to protect yourself, how to be safe in the world should just be what you learn as you're growing up. Because heck, we, we teach kids how to cross the street and, you know, we teach them how to swim so they don't <laughs> drown in the pool, but we don't teach them like relationship skills and life skills to keep themselves safe. And I think this whole idea that they'll just somehow get it you know, or that the world is intrinsically safe and they won't need it is completely backwards. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's the whole picture of this holistic view towards being healthy and safe. And I totally agree. Uh, women could feel much more empowered if they learn some 
basic self-defense strategies. It was really helpful, Cynthia, when you came to our support group and taught some basic moves to our ladies. Uh, you know, women are, we're taught to be polite and not rock the boat. But if we don't risk being rude, sometimes it can be life-threatening. Yeah, that's right. One of the most striking memories I have of the first time coming to talk with your group there was when I said something about listening to the bad feeling that you have in a situation and not dismissing it. Mm -hmm. And I remember every single woman in the room went, that's exactly what happened to me, you know, and they told story after story after story (laughs) of right before the wedding or in the months leading up to it or early on, there was something that Mm -hmm. triggered that bad feeling. But for one reason or another, they overruled it and dismissed it and ignored it and went ahead with the relationship and then discovered further down the road that, you know, that intuition that they had was right on. And that for me was such an eye opener. Yeah. Oh, you're so right, Cynthia. You know, that book, um, Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker talks about that, how listening to that gut instinct, the gut feelings you have inside can keep you alive. And uh, once you get into an uh, an emotionally controlling, abusive relationship, you know, there's a lot of gaslighting that goes on, your partner getting inside your head and convincing you that you didn't really hear what you thought you heard, you didn't really see what you thought you saw. And that uh, over time, that kind of questioning everything on the outside that you're hearing and seeing can become internalized. So you stop listening to that voice inside you. You start doubting it and start to question yourself. So you end up gaslighting yourself. Like, I didn't really hear that. He didn't really mean that. This didn't really happen. And it's the worst thing possible in terms of preserving your own safety is forgetting yourself, forgetting to listen to that inner voice that can keep you alive. Yes, because what you're basically doing is you're teaching yourself to not trust yourself. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. You're you're teaching yourself that his voice takes precedence over yours. His is the truth, not yours any longer. And that's dangerous. That's uh, that leads to brainwashing and a loss of self, loss of identity, loss of freedom. And it can be devastating over time. Well, what are the top issues for the women who come to Women SV? Top issues. Oh, my gosh. Well, um, financial, emotional, parental, existential, technological. They are attacked on all those different levels. And all of those things are put in jeopardy. So... Financial, many of them have lost control of their financial independence. The type of abuser that I'm talking about is typically uh, successful, educated, uh, savvy, has made his way in the world. And I say he for the abuser because, uh, well, though women can be abusers and men can be victims, like typically women are the victims and by male perpetrators. But I do want to acknowledge that both can be guilty and both can be victims. It's just... 85% of domestic violence happens, uh, tends to happen to women. So in a financially controlling relationship, she could, uh, she may start out earning her own income. She may be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, CEO, teacher, like financially self-sufficient, 
But over time, slowly but surely, she could end up losing control of financial situation, especially if she sacrifices her career to stay home and raise children. She'll find that as she gives up more and more of her power, he takes over more and more of the power in the relationship. It's like seeing a relationship as like a zero-sum game. Like there's only so much love, attention, money, power to go around. And if she has more, that must mean he has less. So he's got to take from her in order to have what he needs. And that's living with an emotional vampire, a financial vampire, spiritual vampire. So financially, she can find herself strapped, put on allowance, even if she's the primary breadwinner, may end up coming home and having to turn over her check to her partner. She may end up living in financial fear. So if you can imagine our survivor at the hub of a wheel with spokes, spokes pointing in towards her, and each spoke is a way that she is getting attacked. And later on, we can talk about how she can defend herself. But one of those ways that she gets attacked with that arrow coming from the outside in towards her is financial. Uh, Another way she gets attacked is emotional, emotional abuse uh, that starts off as kind of subtly controlling behavior. Oh, when they go to a restaurant and he wants to order for her, or uh, do you really want to order that? Uh, Do you really think you need dessert? Do you really think you're ready for that promotion? Or why don't you go for that promotion? There's a, it's a difference between encouraging and pressuring, coercing. And that's a, a kind of a slippery slope. It's wonderful if you are sharing power equally in the relationship. But if one party, and it's usually the woman, starts to feel like her power is ebbing away and she's being pushed, pressured, coerced to do things, whether it's ordering something in a restaurant or not, or taking that promotion or not, losing weight, gaining weight, wearing makeup, not wearing makeup, uh, wearing a certain outfit, not wearing it. Over time, she can find that everything that she's saying, doing, thinking is subject to scrutiny or criticism or control, pressure, blame, judgment, intimidation. It's a slippery slope. And over time, that's how she can feel her original identity, her confidence, her spirit is being eroded. So I didn't say that he was yelling at her, calling her names, swearing at her. I'm talking about more subtle forms of abuse that creep up on you over time. And this may be punctuated by periods where he's very nice and praising her or things are peaceful. And so it can be confusing for a woman as she's feeling that, oh, he's got all these lovely qualities, but then there's these little things that he does or says that make me feel uncomfortable or emotionally unsafe, or controlled, pressured in some way. We go back to listening to that inner voice. If his voice starts to drown out her inner voice, that's where she gets into trouble and can start to redefine her reality in terms of how he is describing it to her, how he thinks it should be. You really should get a job. Uh, You shouldn't spend so much time with the children. Why do you keep hugging our son? You're going to turn him into a sissy. Why did you let him go to that party? Or why, uh, why don't you let him go to that party? Why did you, uh, uh, just every, everything that's involved with the children being questioned or sometimes undermined in front, in front of the children so that uh, she starts to feel like she's losing her parental authority. So it's another issue that many women come to me with that they feel like their authority in the home is being undermined by their partner. So we've got the financial, emotional, parental 
authority, all these things being attacked, technologically, often uh, women start to think over time that their husband is stalking them. He's turning up in places that she didn't tell him in advance she was going to be, or he's checking in with her multiple times during the day. In the beginning of the relationship, it looks like, oh my gosh, isn't that sweet? He really cares about me, or he's worried about me. But over time, it can really start to look like he's checking up on her, that he's suspicious, that he's jealous, that he's stalking her. And where do you draw the line? So many of these things I'm talking about are slippery slopes. That financial piece, is he just better at finances? Is he an accountant? And is she an artist? Does it just make sense in terms of uh, division of labor that she cooked the meals and he take care of the financial situation? As long as they feel, they both feel like they're sharing power equally, then that's fine. But as soon as one starts to feel that her control, her power is ebbing away, then we've got a problem. Legally, that's another issue that women struggle with. I have many women who, when they have announced to their husband that they want to leave, they want to get a divorce, the women who've been subjected to abuse over a period of years suddenly find themselves ending up with restraining orders against them, getting kicked out of their own home, losing custody of their children, having to do supervised visits, which they have to pay for. How do they get to this situation? They get set up. They get framed. It's happened so often that I call it the engineered restraining order. Psychologically, they get attacked, too. I've had women who've ended up on 5150 psychiatric holds being made to look crazy by their partners, some of whom are therapists and use their education and credentials to make their wives look crazy. It's hard to take in the scope, like how many ways a person who wants to control you and wants to have the power can actually, you know, wield their power and manipulate your environment so that you do end up basically isolated and powerless. It's just mind boggling to realize how many different ways that can be done. And I'm sure that in most situations, it's not just one at a time. It's multiple, multiple things occurring. Absolutely. And women in the beginning typically don't have language to put on what's happening to them. We're just learning about the term gaslighting and talking about it more and more now. But this sort of subtle tactic of getting inside your head and over time, making you question your memory, your perception of reality, your sanity, it's insidious, it's incremental, it's step by step, it's the old frog in the boiling water, you know, it doesn't start off boiling, it's little by little. And without language to put on it, especially if she gets more and more isolated, that's another tactic that these guys tend to use, is isolating her from her friends, her family, her sphere of influence, her outside social circle of support, so that, as one of my ladies puts it, he becomes the ultimate arbiter of all reality. And if she doesn't have anybody to check out her, in quotes, new normal with, she can start to think that this is normal, that For example, uh, in my support group one day, a lady was talking about how her husband would come in at two o'clock in the, he'd wake her up at two o'clock in the morning, knowing she had to get to work the next day and rant and rave at her for hours, pounding on the bed about how stupid and useless she was. And one of the other ladies in the group said, what do you mean that's not normal? My husband does that every night. 
there was that sense of shock, but also validation that, oh, your husband does that too. And wait, that's not normal. This had become both of their new normal. So without that sort of, without being able to pull the audience or phone a friend to check out what's normal, what's healthy, what do regular people do, then it can start to seem like it's business as usual for a husband to come home and uh, shout to have dinner on the table and to bark at the kids and to chew her out uh, mercilessly for leaving some socks on the top of the dryer, just picking trivial little incidents or events to go to war over. It's demoralizing, debilitating, and dehumanizing over over time. Just attacks her on all levels. Yeah, and I think the horrific thing is that, you know, a woman in this situation goes into it feeling full of love and believing that her partner loves her and cherishes her and cares about her, and so she has trust. And to have this kind of stuff start happening and you know, as you said, it can be really insidious, like very small things to begin with. It makes sense to me yeah, that it so would be Cynthia, so hard to accept that we, and just say, oh, but, you know, I mean, he loves me. He, surely he didn't mean that to hurt me. Oh, my gosh, yes. You said so much in that, in that comment. You summed up a lot, of, a lot of the issue. Anything in the hands of an abuser can become a weapon, even love, even a woman's ability to forgive, to show compassion, to have empathy, these things can be weaponized so that over time she turns the other cheek, she forgives. He had a hard day. He grew up in a, an abusive home. He suffered trauma. He's apologized. Or at least he's being nice now. Those periods when he's being nice, that's what keeps that false hope alive that he'll go back to being the man she fell in love with. Yeah, this type of person tends to view people as uh, resources, as commodities, and he will plumb the depths of those resources, do everything he can to suck that well of love dry, her ability to forgive, turn the other cheek, to show compassion, to try again. He will test that over and over and over again. If she's lucky over time, she'll realize that she's the one putting all the effort into the relationship. Yes, it's a give-and-take relationship. She gives, he takes. The more she gives, the more he takes. Until over time, there can be very little left of her. But like I said, anything in the hands of an abuser can become a weapon, even trust, even love. And then we have to think about, what is love? I mean, depending on, you know, I'm a, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm a Christian. I, I believe in the core truths of the, of the Bible. But whether or not you believe in, in God or religion, many times that passage from Corinthians is read at weddings when it talks about, you know, love is patient, uh, love is kind, it's not proud, it doesn't boast, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. If we, if we go through that list of things that define love and we flip it on its head, that's what abuse is. So... This, you know, the impatience that they often have, the cruelty, the being jealous, the bragging, having to be the center of attention, bringing up ancient history, that sort of vengeful nature that they have, that's, that's abuse. So I would really ask women in a relationship like this to question his declaration that he loves her. 
what is love if it's not respect, kindness, compassion, all the things that she's doing? Right. It's that. And you turn it on its head and that's abuse. It's the actions. Yeah. Yeah. So the ability of hers to enter a relationship with an open heart, these are the strengths that he attacks. It's not because of any weakness on her part that she ends up in a relationship like this. I often say there's two types of women that end up in an abusive relationship. One, they grow up in an unhealthy environment where it just seems like this is business as usual. It feels familiar to them. But the other is where they grow up in a healthy home where there's love and respect and they have no idea what's happening. They've got no language to put on the tactics that are being used on them. And because it's so subtle, so incremental, and because he's such a, a consummate salesman, over time, they can find themselves in over their heads before they even knew what hit them. So in other words, anybody can be vulnerable to this type of relationship because this type of abuser is that good, that persuasive, that charming in the beginning. When I, uh, when I do my trainings for therapists, I ask them to feed back to me what diagnostic labels they would put on the types of behaviors that are commonly reported by the women that I work with. And I've worked with over 1,300 women over the last eight, eight almost nine years. And I, I say, here's the typical profile that gets described to me by these ladies. So they tend to look good on paper, good public image. They tend to be educated, sophisticated, successful, professional. They may give to worthy causes, coach their son's uh, soccer team. Uh, it all looks good on the surface. They're good salesmen, consummate salesmen, but there's a darker side. They tend to lie easily, lie often, even when they don't need to. They'll sprinkle truth in with the lies to make the lies look more believable. They're very good at blaming others, not so good at taking responsibility themselves for the harm that they do to other people. Very good at playing the victim. In addition to lying easily, lying often, even when they don't need to, it's like they just want to keep in practice, they tend to lack empathy. They tend to lack remorse. They tend to lack self-reflection. They tend to lack any sense of moral compass. Truth bends according to their own needs. They almost seem to enjoy causing pain and suffering to the very people they should be protecting the most. They have to also be the center of attention always. Any attention spent on anyone else other than them is deemed to be selfish. It's their show 24-7. Huge sense of entitlement. So when I lay out all these characteristics and behaviors for a therapist in the classes I teach, I ask them, what diagnostic label would you put on this type of personality? And you know what they tell me? What they give back to me? The diagnostic labels? Narcissist, psychopath sociopath, antisocial personality. So this is what I get over and over and over again. So with the, if we're talking about this type of personality, then you can see how futile, futile it is for them to try couples counseling. Anything in the hands of an abuser can become a weapon, a tool to manipulate even marriage counseling. Wow, that's, that's quite an eye-opening portrait that you've painted and it's very clear I can I can see it super clearly I think one of the really key things is a master manipulator accomplishes what they want to accomplish because you don't know that they're manipulating you absolutely 
manipulators who aren't that good, you can kind of tell that they're doing it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And the ones that are expert oh, yes. at it, you don't really even notice it's happening until it's too late. It's the difference between a con artist and a CEO. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, like, uh, you know, somebody, you know, used to work at the, you know, in the carnivals years ago or a snake oil salesman, as they called them in the old days. Somebody that did the shell game, yes, they could be easy to see through. But these consummate salesmen who are so articulate and so persuasive, they'll tell you it's midnight and snowing and you'll believe them because they're that good. This is one of my ladies had a little four-year-old child who had fallen down and bloodied his knee, bleeding, and she put the Band-Aid on. And uh, he was he was crying at the top of his lungs as she put the Band-Aid on and the blood was leaking through the bandage. Dad showed up and got angry at the child for crying and angry at mom for comforting the child while crying. And the dad was saying, minimizing what had happened, saying, there's no blood there. What's wrong with that kid? There's nothing. There's nothing to cry about. There's nothing there. Nothing there. And, and as he said that, nothing to cry about, nothing there. She said she literally saw the blood disappear, evaporate before her very eyes that control that he had over her mind that she had been so brainwashed to the point that he could distort distort reality in the moment for her. Wow. That's mind boggling and terrifying at the same time. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, what are some of the most common misconceptions or false beliefs about domestic violence that you encounter? That if it was really so bad, she would have left. If it was really so bad, she would have called the police. That domestic violence is broken bones, bruises, and blood. The most damage is done through emotional abuse. The wounds you don't see cut the deepest and last the longest and take the longest to heal from. In a way, it would be easier for women if it was just, in quotes, physical violence you call the police, they come, they look at the blood, the broken bones, the bruises. He gets arrested. There's legal consequences. But somebody getting inside your mind, your heart, your soul, chipping away at your identity, who do you call for that? Who do you protect? Who protects you from that? So in parts of the United Kingdom, uh, coercive control, micromanagement of one's everyday activities, intimidation, Uh, like, I don't have to hit you directly. I can hit the wall beside you and give you the message that first the wall, and then if you don't toe the line, you're next. This micromanagement of one's everyday activities, sending her out on trivial errands, criticizing her every move, everything she says, does, thinks. The financial control, putting her on an allowance. These things, though harder to prove, once proven, are illegal with legal consequences in parts of the United Kingdom. This was a mission that was spearheaded by Evan Stark, who wrote a book. He literally wrote the book on coercive control called Coercive Control. An American sociologist has succeeded in making coercive control illegal in parts of the United Kingdom. Whereas over here, the United States, we've taken a huge step back. In the old days, that is until January of this year, If a woman went online on the Department of Justice website to look up the definition of domestic violence, she would find that it included things like I just described, the emotional abuse, financial control. As of 
February of this year, February of 2019, a woman searching for information, answers, help, protection, goes on the Department of Justice website and now sees the definition of domestic violence as including only felonies and misdemeanors. That is a huge step back in terms of protecting women. So how did that happen? Well, I'm thinking that it's a reaction to the Me Too movement. We're uh, in, a, in a time in our country where it almost seems like there's a war on women. We look at different parts of the United States now. We see that more and more states are uh, making abortion illegal six weeks into conception. As soon as there's a heartbeat, it's now illegal in certain states to get uh, an, a, an abortion. Sometimes there's not even a, you know, a, a rape or uh, incest exception. There's, I don't know if you've seen the series, The Handmaid's Tale. It's almost like an eerie prediction of things to come. So it, it just feels like sometimes in our country, we swing the pendulum from one extreme to the other. So we have, on the one hand, Me Too and Time's Up. And on the other hand, felonies and misdemeanors now defining domestic violence. In California, fortunately, it still includes financial abuse, emotional abuse, the more, uh, though it's still, you know, hard to prove, it's still the acts of uh, domestic violence include uh, destroying personal property, sleep deprivation, uh, false imprisonment, acts that don't result in bruises or broken bones that but are debilitating and terrorizing. What counts as a felony and misdemeanor in the federal view? Bodily harm or the threat of causing bodily harm. So it's like what you can see on the surface as opposed to the internal damage. And that's it? Uh, Federally, yes, federally. Yeah, yeah. So and this kind of just slipped through the cracks without much discussion. Uh, So I think it's really important that we take a moment and recognize what's happening in our country in terms of the rights and freedom of women. Yeah. So... I want to circle back. You said one of the most common misconceptions or or the false beliefs that you encounter is that very common one of why doesn't she just leave? You know, if it's so bad, why doesn't she just leave? Like, how do you respond to that? So first, these comments, uh, this comment is made typically by somebody who's innocent, who has not been in a relationship like this, unless you've been in this type of relationship or a lot of time with people who've been in this type of relationship, uh, you think the ordinary rules of reality apply. If you are mean to me, I'm out of here. That um, that statement carries with it the assumption that you both are on equal footing in terms of the power in the relationship and that one party is not afraid of the other. If you are in a relationship and over time, your partner has taken more and more control of the finances, of your freedom, of your daily life, if he's powerful if he is uh, well-connected out in the world, if there are things at stake like your home, your career, your children, your livelihood, your life, these are all things that are threatened when you tell somebody who's abusive that you don't want to be with them anymore. Every single one of those things will come under attack. So by the time a woman recognizes that she needs to leave the relationship, She's often lost a lot of her power innocently in this relationship. The smarter a woman is, the more compassion she has 
the longer she tends to stay in this type of relationship. And the more isolated she is, the longer she tends to stay. The more isolated she is, the more vulnerable she is to his brainwashing. The smarter she is, the more she thinks that she can figure it out. She's got lots of other problems figured out. She's solved a lot of problems through her life. Maybe this is something she can solve too. What she needs to come to is the realization, the horrifying epiphany that she's powerless over his decision to be abusive. It's a choice. At some point in his life, he decided that he was going to have power over other people rather than ever feel powerless himself. This type of mentality is a kill or be killed mentality. It's every man for himself. It's a jungle out there. There's this kind of warfare outlook on life. Whereas she probably typically has the outlook on life. It's peace, negotiation, settlement, love. This too shall pass if I just, and then fill in the blanks, get dinner on the table on time, get the kids off to bed or off to school, or they just get straight A's, or if I go back to work, or if I quit work, if I just do any of these things, then things will be better. Then another year goes by, another decade goes by, she blinks, and now she starts to see the gray hair. She's had another child. She's given up more and more of her life, her identity, until one day she recognizes There's nothing I can do to make things better. This is who he is. And I have no control over who he has decided to be. And that's that horrifying epiphany that she has to come to before she can start to think about leaving. That epiphany can take years to come to, especially if she's become isolated, sometimes from her own extended family members, because he's that good. He's that convincing. He's that charming. He'll work on her own mother and father and sisters and brothers and friends and colleagues and extended family members to convince him that there's something wrong with her. And she may come off sounding kind of edgy or irritable or, or a little ADD or distracted, uh, a little fragile, scattered, high strung, distraught, anxious, depressed. These are all side effects of post-traumatic stress disorder, the impact of living with somebody that is chronically abusing you. Whereas he may come off as being sane, confident, confident, poised, well-balanced, just wanting to understand what's going on with his wife. Why isn't she the woman that he married? What's happened to her? He's trying so hard. And what happened to her? So if she doesn't have any allies... She doesn't have anybody to check out her reality with. If she's been silent about the abuse, I often say as hard as it is to live with an abuser, it's almost impossible to leave without outside support. So back to that question, if it was so bad, why didn't you leave? For all those reasons, financial, emotional, if she's been stalked electronically, if her identity has been attacked, if every single piece of her, part of her, has come under scrutiny and criticism and attack. You can see, just imagine the sand sculpture on the, on the beach and the waves slowly over time eroding who she was. How do you leave when you're made to feel powerless, when you're made to feel it was all your fault? Yeah, that's really powerful, the picture that you've painted. Yeah. You know, it- yeah. Well, Cynthia, can I just say, like, what happens when she does decide to leave? That's yeah, that was my next question. Inc- <laughs> okay, we're on the same wavelength. Over 70% of domestic violence incidents occur after the woman leaves the relationship. 
that's the most dangerous time in a relationship after she leaves. That's when he declares war on her. If things have been difficult before, just you wait. Once she leaves, she's signaling to him that he no longer has control over the relationship. And domestic violence, domestic abuse is all about power and control, the abuse of power in order to control another person. And by telling him that she's leaving, she's saying to him, you no longer have control over me. That's threatening his power, his possession, often his sense of who he is. So she's declared war on him. He declares war on her. And he will go after her on many different levels, sometimes physically, attacking her physically. That's why safety, physical safety planning is so important. That's why teaching self-defense, like what you do, is so important to, to women should they ever find themselves in that position. Most women think, oh, be, they might be attacked by their stranger, by a stranger. How many think they could be attacked by their own intimate partner? But that's really where most of the threat and most of the danger comes from. You're far more likely to be attacked by your beloved than you are by a stranger, ironically enough. Then legally, she's going to come under attack. I've had so many of the women that I work with lose custody of their children, being made to look like they are abusive or crazy or lazy. Lots of different ways they come under attack. If they've been stay-at-home moms, they're, they're lazy. If they are on prescription medication for anxiety or depression, oh, they're crazy. If they've been defending themselves because their partner has attacked them, well, they get labeled the abuser. Sometimes the women will have done nothing and he will totally set them up, keep her awake all night, ranting and raving at her, throwing plates at her, making her fear for her life. She'll call the police. Then he'll get to the police before she does and then tell the police that that she's attacked him. She'll get carted off to jail or on a psychiatric hold and be made to look like the perpetrator. Uh, So many ladies losing custody of their children. He will look at the things that mean the most, the people, the relationships, everything that is the most valuable to her, and he will attack those very things. So often he will go after custody of the children, even if he's been neglectful or abusive in the past, suddenly he can't bear to be without the children. He will cry those crocodile tears in court. Now, I'm not talking about good men who divorce good women or good women who divorce good men, and they do the best they can to make things as peaceful as they can for the sake of their children. I'm not talking about that type of relationship. I'm talking about a relationship where there's a huge imbalance of power where one lives in fear of the other and one is dragged back to court over and over again, where the abuse gets transferred from home into the legal arena. It's abuse by proxy using the legal system, using the court system. And even judges can be guilty of implicit bias where they see a stay at home mom and characterize her as lazy. They see a mom who's been on a psychiatric hold and automatically assume she's incapable of looking after the children. They see a woman who has a restraining order against her and automatically assume she's an abuser. We have to stop judging a book by its cover. Just as an abuser can look like a fine, upstanding citizen and a pillar of the community and can be a physician, a therapist, an attorney, a CEO, a religious leader, and also be guilty of abuse. 
So a victim of abuse, a survivor, can have been on a psychiatric hold, can have been in jail, can have had a restraining order placed against her, and also be at the same time an innocent victim who's a wonderful mom, a caring partner, just wanting peace for her family and her children, and have become a victim of the diabolical strategic manipulation of her husband, where, as I said before, anything in the hands of an abuser can become a weapon. Even the court system, even the legal system can be weaponized in the hands of an abuser. Yeah, the scope of the deceit that you're describing is absolutely mind-boggling. And that's why the average person fails to see it. The average professional, the average provider fails to see it because it's mind-boggling, because we don't have language to put on it. It's, uh, it's like this parallel universe that's right before our very eyes. And once we know what to look for, then it's all around us. Right. Yes, but until you can actually wrap your head around the idea of it, it just sounds incredible. Like, unbelievable. And Absolutely. And that's how they get away with it, because it's uncanny. It's unbelievable. And that's why we have so many women suffering in silence around the country. I have people that call me from all over the country. And after we talk for a while, they say, you're the first person who gets it. I've been just keeping this secret, this dark secret for so many years. I've been ashamed to tell anyone. I've been afraid no one would believe me. My husband's a doctor. Uh, my husband's on, on city council. My uh, husband's a celebrity. Everybody reveres my husband. They have no idea he's got this dark side. Is it me? He tells me it's my fault. I feel like I'm, I'm the only one. And now suddenly you're telling me that you've worked with you know, so many other women suffering from the same issue. It's that silence, the shame, the secrecy that inadvertently ends up colluding with the abuser because abuse thrives in silence and shame. And until we start talking about it, bringing it out in the open, they're going to continue to get away with it. Yeah. Because as long as it's invisible, how do you fight it? Yeah. Well, that's what you're doing, though. You know, that's the work that you're doing. And that's one reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast was to really yes, start thank shining you so much. Oh, bless your heart, Cynthia. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this. And that uh, being on a show like yours is so, so very helpful. And I'm sure women are going to be hearing this and thinking, now I'm not alone. Now we're finally starting to break the taboo of talking about domestic abuse in middle to upper income areas as if it doesn't happen here. It does. We're just better at hiding it. Yeah. Well, I'd like to ask you what some of the must know concepts or strategies or tools are that women should have or need to learn when they're in this situation and they've, they've had that epiphany and they want to change, they want to get out. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So first comes the recognition and the horror and the mourning of that dream that they would have hoped would last forever, that dream of a relationship that they wanted to last forever. And that takes time to mourn the loss of. But then, then that closing of that door leads to the opening of another after the question, now what? So it's not a question to ask in isolation. That's when it's important to start gathering allies, gathering support, sharing her story with safe people. 
if she can start reaching out. Some women haven't even told their uh, physician about what's been going on. If she can start to share her story with safe people, break that silence. Do remember, abuse thrives in secrecy, silence, shame, and isolation. So we think about what are the strategies that he's using and how do we counter those strategies? If isolation is his strategy, what's the counter strategy? Gathering allies. And we gather allies through sharing our secret little by little with safe people, starting with perhaps a pediatrician. If she's volunteering in the school and has a good relationship with the teachers, uh, maybe starting to share a little bit with the teachers. Because what he will do once the relationship ends, or if he's aware that it's uh, on the way out, he will start to gather his lies. He will sprinkle truth, but it'll be mostly lies. If she can defend herself by sharing her truth with people in a position to help her, then that will help prepare her for the battle that lies ahead. He will typically start to poison the waters with all the groups that she interfaces with, whether it be the kids, teachers, people at her work, extended family members. If she can start to share her story little by little with her extended family members, her colleague, her pediatrician, if she can start to quietly, secretly start interviewing attorneys, pay cash, park a few blocks away, walk the rest of the way, take a paper and pencil with her, go low tech as much as possible, just in case he's electronically stalking her, to start to get gather information. So gathering allies, gathering support, gathering information. So interviewing attorneys, asking questions about well, what, what does the divorce process look like, especially high conflict. When I hear high conflict, uh, unfortunately, it seems to imply blame on both sides. And judges, unfortunately, kind of buy into that as well, saying, if only you two could try to get along for the sake of your children. She is not typically in there because she wants to be there. He is there because he wants to drag her to court, stonewall, drag the process out, deplete her financial resources by having her eat up all her uh, resources and attorney fees. So if she can start interviewing attorneys early on, get a sense of uh, what they charge, how long the process is going to take. Will he be able to ask for an advance on community assets, especially if she's not been working right up front? Will he be able to ask that he cover the attorney fees, that he pay for her attorney fees, especially if she's not been working? The spouse who's earning the higher income should be the one who's uh, covering the cost of the divorce, especially if she's been a stay-at-home mom. Here again is where restraining orders can be weaponized. If you have a restraining order against a spouse, it can be harder to, if you are on the receiving end of that restraining order, it can be hard for you to, uh, to get financial support from your husband if you have a restraining order against you. So sometimes I think there is this back room where these guys get together and say, how can we prevent our wives from getting any part of the community property? How can we really stick it to her? How can we punish her? How can we take control of the finances and the children and the house? How can we win? How can we destroy her and win everything? Oh, if we get a restraining order against her with a kickout clause, we can kick her out of the house. And uh, then uh, we may not have to end up paying her spousal support. We can scoop custody of the kids and not have to pay her child support. So if this is a strategy that's being employed, if she can start to think about what are different ways that he could set her up and make her look like she's the guilty one, is he 
keeping her up all night? Is he poking, poking, poking at her, pressing all her buttons, pushing all her buttons, trying to uh, make her grab him or throw something or trying to rattle her in some way to justify him calling the police and telling the police that he's afraid of her? Can she start to think strategically over time so that she becomes aware of the tactics that are being used against her? When she becomes aware of the tactics, that can take her out of reactive mode and put her into strategic thinking mode. Our typical response to trauma is fight, flight, freeze. Fight, where we fight back, grab his arm, throw his cell phone, reach out in some hostile way. Fight, flight, where we run away or dissociate. If we can't run away physically, we sort of leave the scene in our bodies. Freeze, where we just numb out, we can't think at all. Or there's another way. In addition to fight, flight, freeze, here's another response to the traumatic experience of dealing with abuse. Strategize. Starting to see, oh, he's waking me up at 2 o'clock in the morning every night. He's finding some way to deprive me of sleep. He's trying to make me lose my grip on uh, reality. You can drive someone crazy through sleep deprivation. You can make them do things they'll regret later by keeping them up all night, night after night. So knowing that he's doing that, uh, what can she do to counter that? Earplugs, getting naps during the day, finding ways to, to rest, knowing the tactics that are being used, she can start to employ her own counter strategies to deal with them. If she can start to think like he does without becoming like him, that's going to help her defend herself in the days ahead. If she's been all about peace, love, negotiation, settlement, she should be careful about projecting her own values onto her husband, onto her partner, because typically his values are war, business, revenge, winning, power, sex, money, things. Yeah. It's power, control, status. These are the things that make his world go round. So she should be careful about projecting her own values onto him. He will typically project his own values onto her. He'll be thinking, oh, she's trying to destroy me. This is war. She's trying to destroy me. I've got to destroy her. So if she can start to be thinking, learning from his strategies without becoming like him, to counter them, to think about the moves that he's planning down the road, he'll be an excellent chess player. And if she's been suffering the throes of trauma, She'll be just fighting fires as he places them, not thinking about the ambush he's planning for her down the road. So if she can get herself into a, to some kind of counseling and is with somebody that understands EMDR to help her take some of the emotion out of the trauma triggers and help her think more carefully, EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Mm -hmm. It's a therapeutic technique that can help people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. So often it's hard to think rationally, coherently, sequentially when you're dealing with trauma. So back to the fight, flight, freeze, strategize, thinking about how can I shore up my emotional reserves? I'm going to be attacked on all levels legally. Why well, I better get some effective legal representation financially? What kind of independent source of income do I have? Can I start thinking about going back to work? Are there people I can borrow money from? Can I start to save money quietly, secretly? Can I open an account in another private bank, withdrawing cash and depositing cash to cover my tracks? Technologically, can I go low tech when I'm going to sensitive appointments, park several blocks away, get a flip phone, 
with a different carrier so he doesn't see my phone numbers appearing on our family plan for the phone bill. So if we imagine her back to that being in the hub with all the spokes of this wheel where she's being attacked financially, legally, emotionally, possibly physically, then devising a strategy around each one of those ways she's being attacked. That's how she'll plan her escape bit by bit, step by step. Leaving is a process, not an event. It's to be taken with great care, step by step, slowly, and with lots of support, emotionally, socially, gathering her allies around her. Oh, wow. Thank you for describing that whole process because it it makes so much more sense to me now. I think even I, I was just feeling kind of overwhelmed with, oh, my gosh, like there's so many things that a woman in this situation has to deal with. Like, how could she possibly deal with it all? And you really clearly answered that. So thank you. Well, thank you, Cynthia. And thank you for pointing that out, that so many women, they can't begin the journey because they feel so overwhelmed. But uh, I like to invoke the Kaizen philosophy, Kaizen, K-A-I-Z-E-N. This sort of philosophy that they apply in the business world, little tiny incremental steps, almost guaranteed of success because they're so small. So if they can make just one phone call in a day to an attorney, or go to a library and look up one website uh, that talks about domestic abuse in the more subtle forms, or download, if they can, secretly and safely, a book on domestic violence and read a chapter. If they can do one little thing at a time, then slowly but surely they can start to build their resources. One thing at a time. Anybody can do something for five minutes. Anybody can make one phone call or visit one support group for one evening. And this is the road to freedom. If we talk about death by a thousand cuts, where he is chipping away at her self-esteem, her identity, her joy in life, slowly but surely over time, we can talk about recapturing that identity and happiness and freedom one little tiny step at a time. You know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So one step at a time, that's the road to freedom. Right. Well, also, I think for a woman in a situation like this, being able to reach out to somebody like you and an organization like Women SV is huge. So I want to talk a little bit about what, you know, what you started doing with your nonprofit and, you know, what your plan is for creating that training center. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Yeah, it is wonderful if women can call an organization like mine or one in their neighborhood. With the typical domestic violence agency, they're very good at physical and sexual abuse, addressing those safety needs and helping to plan around that. Our focus, uh, while we do help in those areas, we focus more on the more subtle forms. That's our area of expertise in the financial and emotional and technological abuse and how to address how to address that. So that's what has led us to working on turning Women SV into a training center that will invite providers from all around the country to come and learn how to deal with this population. If you're, for example, a physician and somebody comes to the ER and they've fallen again and have got another bruise or a broken bone, are they accident prone or could you take a moment and just take them aside away from their concerns, worried looking husband, but get them aside? and talk to them privately and ask them, are you feeling emotionally safe at home? Do you ever feel threatened? 
if they're coming to the ER, showing up in the ER with having a hard time breathing or having felt uh, lighthearted or dizzy after some kind of encounter with their husband, could they go through the strangulation protocol? So physicians need to be better trained in recognizing signs of traumatic brain injury as a result of having been strangled by their partner. Sometimes there's no even uh, physical uh, wounds, but women can end up dying for days, weeks afterward as a result of swelling that occurs after strangulation. So for therapists, psychiatrists, when somebody shows up who looks like they need to be on a 5150 psychiatric hold, could they go through a protocol that determines, is this person suffering from mental illness, from hallucinations or delusions, some kind of psychosis? Is this person suffering from the impact of domestic abuse, long-term chronic abuse, where they've been forced to go for days, weeks, months, years without proper sleep? Have they been terrorized in their home? Have they lost their freedom and their identity? Is this person suffering from mental illness and chronic abuse? Physicians, psychiatrists, therapists are not given proper training in domestic abuse. For most therapists get very limited training in domestic abuse and tend to see it as a communication issue. Domestic violence is a, is a crime. Domestic abuse in parts of the United Kingdom, as I said, is a crime, a financial control, coercive control, and it should be a crime here. So it's a crime, but it has therapeutic implications. Those can be well treated by a trained counselor, but they should also be trained in recognizing signs of coercive behavior, of controlling behavior of, of somebody who's lived under uh, chronic abuse. So for uh, teachers, recognizing children in educational settings is uh, Junior having a hard time paying attention in school because he's got or she's got ADD or ADHD, which is a behavioral diagnosis? Or are they distracted because they're thinking about the way dad treats mom or sometimes the way mom treats dad in the home? So because teachers are mandated reporters, they can be sometimes reluctant to ask children specific questions about their home life. And children are very good at keeping secrets, as are survivors of domestic violence. With proper training, they can give children the support, and comfort, validation they need so that children can learn that there are other options to growing up in a home where violence and abuse are seen as the only remedies to conflict. They can learn that there's other ways to solve your disagreements in a relationship, and they don't always involve power and control over another person. So teachers and therapists and psychiatrists and physicians, attorneys, attorneys having victims of domestic violence come to them. You can become a family law attorney with zero education in domestic violence. I think every attorney, family law attorney especially, should be it should be mandated that they take classes in domestic violence and understand the more subtle forms of power and control because attorneys go on to become judges. And if they're not properly trained, judges will end up saying if it wasn't if it was so bad. Why didn't you call the police? If it was so bad, why did you stay so long? He only strangled you the one time. They will end up saying things like this that have been heard in family court. Judges need to understand that domestic violence is a crime. And if you're walking down the street and somebody attacks you, if a stranger attacks you, they're going to jail, hopefully. But if you share a child with that person, why is it that you end up going to reconnection therapy with them and having the problem treated like a communication problem? It's still a crime. And the more a child is exposed to toxic behavior that involves power and control with somebody that has personality issues and is that person and will be that person who's manipulative and cunning and 
diabolical, over time, that child is going to learn that that's how, that's how you are in the world. And then this generation of abusers is born. So a child growing up in a, an abusive relationship, an abusive family, has three choices. They can become an abuser, they can become a victim, or they can go their own way saying, I know what abuse looks like. I want to treat the people in my life with more care and compassion than I received when I was growing up. And it's hard to say sometimes what makes somebody choose that third path. It's easier to choose the first two. So with this training center, I'm hoping that we can make a difference and even get into the schools and help teachers break that cycle of violence so that children realize they have a choice in the world. And it's the ripple effect where we can make every home a safe home uh, that's free and safe for children to grow up and become healthy, healthy partners in their own romantic and intimate relationships. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. And I know that you're going to do it. Knowing you and knowing what you've accomplished so far, I have no doubt whatsoever that this training center Mm -hmm. is going to become a reality and that your reach is going to extend at least nationwide, if not further than that. And I think what you're talking Mm -hmm. about is really the solution. I mean, number one is the awareness. And like I said, like I had no idea prior to talking with you years ago and, and working with women who were in these situations that this is what it was. You know, I had Mm -hmm. just a superficial understanding and I think I'm typical So the work that you're doing, you know, to say, okay, here's reality is really going to change the entire dynamic. So kudos to you for having the vision and putting in the the hard work to do it. And I can't wait. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for being part of it, part of this journey and allowing me to talk about this issue and really put it on the table You know, I can talk to my friends, talk to my colleagues, but the ripple effect is really going to happen through talking to people like you that are able to get it to a a broader audience. So thank you for being part of this. Oh, of course. I'm I'm in in the same work that you are. Uh, Just have Mm -hmm. a different piece of it. And like, I want to support you as much as I possibly can. Bless your heart. And back at you, Cynthia. We're in it together, huh? It's girl power. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, I have two brief questions remaining. One of them is what you would suggest people do if they suspect that somebody that they know, somebody in their community, in their circle, is in a situation like this. Yeah, oh, that's such a wonderful question. So many of us, we don't want to embarrass the other person. We, We say, oh, what if we're wrong? Or we don't want to offend the other person. But if we come from a position of love and care and concern, then uh, those are the words that can guide us when we are talking to somebody that we care about. So it could be something as simple as, I've noticed you seem a little distracted lately, or you seem a little worried or upset, or just feels like things are a little bit different. Is there anything you want to talk about? Or I'm concerned about you. I'm getting concerned about you and about your safety, or I'm concerned about the safety of you and your children. If you want to talk to somebody, I can connect you with somebody. If there's somebody that you'd like to talk to about this, I have some resources that you might be interested in. And so then you can give them my organization, 
name and phone number. You can suggest they talk to a domestic violence agency in their in their area. All you can do really is express your concern, offer a resource if they're open to it, and invite them to call. And then taking that risk and then seeing where it goes, you could be saving a life. Yeah, yeah. And maybe just planting a seed that helps that woman reach that moment where she has the yes. epiphany that you were talking about. Oh, yes. Oh, Cynthia. Yes. Oh, you're just reminding me, too. I also write a column for our local newspaper. And I had a lady who called me. It was this particular one was like a five part series. And at the end of that series, a lady called me and said, you know, I didn't realize I was in an abusive relationship until I read this series. They didn't have language to put on it, a name to put on it until reading the description of what emotional abuse, coercive control looks like. Right. Yeah, exactly. If your understanding of domestic violence is broken bones and bruises, and yeah. that's not what's happening to you, but all this other stuff is, then mm. it, I can see it would be really hard to say that, well, this is also domestic violence. You know, it's like, yes. well, I'm not getting hit, so it must not be that. <laughs> so there, yes, absolutely. And it's so important to make that distinction. There is the assault on the body and then the assault on the mind the assault on the spirit, yeah. the assault on the soul. Yeah. And one you can get arrested for and the other, it just can take a lifetime to heal from. But it is it is very damaging and it can kill you over time. Yeah. Well, my last question is, how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Oh, my gosh. Oh, I love that question. Working from the inside out, so starting with how do I treat myself? Sometimes we can, you know, if we were thinking about our sister in a situation that was difficult or abusive, we would have better advice, more words of comfort and love to give her than we do to ourselves, for ourselves. Working from the inside out, how am I looking after myself? Am I getting enough sleep? Am I eating well? Am I, even if it's coming to like watching TV, am I watching uplifting shows that are empowering and hopeful and optimistic or are they is it one after the other about serial killers uh every now and again i'm sure that's you know not, not going to do any damage but what am i doing in my own personal life to lift myself up and with my friends are these friends who are lifting me up do they encourage me do they make me feel emotionally safe as i am trying to do with them or do they put me down and make me feel like i'm you know back at home with my husband in my work life Am I feeling like I have meaningful work that I am valued by my colleagues, by my supervisors, by the impact of the work I'm doing in my spiritual life? Have I found a way to find some kind of faith in something that's bigger than myself, whether it be God or nature or some kind of uh, spiritual discipline? What am I doing in the way of uh, reaching out to forces larger than my own small sphere of influence. So socially, interpersonally, am I connecting with other people to reach out and lift them up and hoping that they will do the same for me? It's about connection. It's about engagement in the end. We go back to the counter strategy to the abuser, which is about isolation. So empowerment comes from connection with others. First connection with ourselves, getting back in touch with that inner voice, listening to our own inner voice, not letting it be drowned out by the voice of our partner telling us we're stupid, we're lazy, we can't achieve anything, we'll be nothing without them. 
if we can let that voice fade into the background and let our voice come front and center and say, I am woman, hear me roar. Here's what I can do. And if we can share that voice with friends and colleagues and the people in our sphere of influence where we are encouraging them, lifting them up, lifting our children up, encouraging, loving, supporting, validating them, and in turn seeking that love and support and validation from them. It's about collecting our allies, gathering our support people around us so we create our own little village. Let's make our own little village. I, you know how um, they, used to, they would say that it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to leave an abuser. It takes a village to empower ourselves in order to be able to do that and to be strong and uh, secure in our relationships going forward so that we recognize early warning signs of abuse through educating ourselves, educating our sisters, our mothers, our daughters, and the good men in our lives, because there's plenty of good men out there too. And as good women, we'll attract other good women and other good men, but we also attract predators. So over time with education, support, allies, we can empower ourselves and live to fight and live and love another day. Yes. That was awesome. That was just your heart. That was just great. Well thank you, Cynthia. Yeah, thank you, Risbon. I am I am so glad that we were able to make this happen to get you on the podcast. I mean, we have covered so much and it's hard to take in and yet it's essential to Mm. get it. And so thank you so much for coming on and just sharing the insight and the experience and the wisdom that you have. And thank you for doing the work that you are doing. I love what you're up to and you've got my unwavering support. Bless your heart, Cynthia. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to share my message. And thank you for the work that you do. We're all part of this beautiful work in progress. And I love how you do the same in your work, lifting women up and empowering them. So I'm hoping that we can continue to forge our, forge our relationship, nurture our relationship, and just keep moving ahead day by day, step by step together. Thanks for being part of this grand adventure. Oh, thank you. Yes, we definitely will be staying connected and mutually supporting. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Born to be a Badass podcast. And I just want to say, stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.